Well, welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast on today, the 26th of March. And today we've got a very special message delivered by Elizabeth Pepke, realised by Cher Coleman. And uh, it's with great joy that I introduce to you Elizabeth Pepke. What a pleasure to be here in the chapel with all of you. It's really quite an honor to speak to you this morning and to reflect on the unique Roaring Fork Valley from the perspective of one who had the great fortune of standing alongside visionaries who collectively reimagined the community of Aspen at a very particular time in world events, the end of World War II. In 1939, Walter Pepke and I lived in Chicago, and we had our Perry Park Ranch in Larkspur, Colorado. As fate would have it, we were entertaining a house full of guests at the ranch when a water pipe broke in the upper floors causing the ceiling to fall in a mass of mush onto my cook stove below, forcing an impromptu adventure. Walter stayed behind to attend to the plumbing repair while I acted on a tip from a friend who often spoke with great delight about a small town asleep high in the Rocky Mountains. So I chose this opportunity of our plumbing disaster and led my friends on a ski outing to the lapsed silver mining town of Aspen. It took us 12 hours from Larkspur, two train rides and a drive at midnight on an unplowed road. Aspen was dark when we arrived. Not a light shone until through the swirling snow, we saw vaguely a large brick building with sad, long windows. One light bulb lit the foyer. This was the famous Hotel Jerome, of which we had heard so much. We entered. The door blew shut behind us, and the maitre d' fumbled among some ancient keys and then led us up a long staircase. We hauled our ski equipment and our luggage to the upper floor and waited while acceptable rooms were eventually found. Beds were pulled down out of walls, and we managed to get a night's sleep in our less-than-welcoming accommodations. The next morning, before light, we hitched a ride up Aspen Mountain in the back of a pickup truck with our ski guide and the last remaining crew of miners. The road ended where the tunnel to the midnight mine began. This is where we stumbled into half-light, pulled sealskins over our skis, and began to herringbone up to the top of Richmond Hill. Of course, this was not a hill we discovered. It was an 11,500-foot mountain. Our little climb took us five hours. At the top, we halted in frozen admiration 
The mountain, mountain range after mountain range succeeded another, rising and falling like storm-driven waves. In all that landscape of rock, snow, and ice, there was neither print of animal nor track of man. We were alone as though the world had just been created, and we its first inhabitants. The exquisite beauty of the mountains and the rough charm of a town somewhat frozen in time remained with me, prompting my desire to return with my husband, Walter. But war intervened, and Walter did not visit Aspen until spring of 1945. I need to pause my story and give a little necessary information about Walter and myself. It's very important that you know that our roots ran deep into German culture. German culture inspired by Goethe, by the Bauhaus, by the arts, not by Hitler. My father was chairman of the Department of Romance Languages at the University of Chicago. My mother was a creative, vibrant woman with a love of the outdoors. Our family home was alive always with intellectual and creative discourse. Walter was the son of a successful German-American businessman in Chicago. We met when I was eight years old and Walter was 11. We formed a fast friendship based on our mutual love of art and ideas. Although Walter's educational direction was more entrepreneurial, he was unmistakably an esthete. We married in 1922. Walter took over and converted his father's lumber business into the very successful Container Corporation of America, I worked as an interior and theater designer. Our intellectual and philosophical life was manifest at the University of Chicago through the great books of Western civilization, a program in large part designed to broaden the perspectives of the American businessman. Walter became a trustee of the University of Chicago, and friendships grew between Walter and I and the president, Robert Hutchins, and philosopher Mortimer Adler. Because of my family influences and my arts education at the, at the uh, Chicago Art Institute, I strongly encouraged Walter to employ Bauhaus artists as designers for the Container Corporation. This was an unusual marriage of art and business. This introduction to Bauhaus modernism became my husband's aesthetic credo. Now, just to review a bit about the Bauhaus, it was the most influential modernist art school of the 20th century. It was a German movement grappling with rapid change and growth brought about by the Industrial Revolution. And it had a major impact both in Europe and the United States long after it closed. The motivations behind its creation lay in 19th century, 19th century anxieties about the soullessness of manufacturing 
and manifest in the Bauhaus mission was to reconcile art and machine. It was certainly not without conflicts or contradictions, but its core ethos was a powerful community spirit. The Bauhaus was antithetical to Nazi doctrine. It survived moving just ahead of Nazi infiltration for 14 years, finally succumbing to political pressures and closing in 1933. Many Bauhaus teachers and artists moved to America. Walter Gropius, founder of the Bauhaus, and Marcel Brewer became architects and teachers at Harvard, Harvard University. Mies van der Rohe designed and taught in Chicago. Laszlo Moholy-Nagy founded the new Bauhaus in Chicago in 1937, in part with the financial support of Walter Pepke. The Container Corporation retained Herbert Beyer, who some of you may recognize, as an artist-designer consultant. Herbert became both creative and personal friend. The stage was set and characters in the wings for ideas and vision the little town of Aspen inspired. The tragedy of war was a raw nerve. The healing salve we carried was the coming together of fertile minds at the University of Chicago, the ideals of the Bauhaus, and the vast teachings of Goethe and our own passion for something of transcendental value, something that would enrich not only ourselves, but society at large. This was all gestating when Walter and I returned together Memorial Day weekend in 1945. Aspen's summer appearance was entirely different from my visit in 1939 in the winter. Walter and I walked together through the town in leafy, pleasant, beautiful shade, and between the tangled cottonwoods and the ancient lilacs and orchard grass, we could see ruins of collapsing wooden houses, quite beautiful, with gables and fretwork carved like lace. Here a door was missing. There a roof gaped. Shutters hung on broken hinges and porches sagged. We looked through broken glass into parlors still carpeted where flowered wallpaper hung in sad festoons and sofas oozed their horsehair stuffing onto the floor to mingle with long discarded newsprint. Individuals, families, had left their houses, their furniture, china, books, and attics crowded with battered trunks, which they had brought with them in 1871 or so, scattered clothing and old photographs and torn letters spilled down the rotting staircases, still carrying messages of joy or sorrow as each hot, dry summer succeeded still another snowbound winter. By 1945, Aspen had become a silent village where less than 300 could barely scrape out a living. During our leisurely stroll down Main Street on that sunny day, we saw nothing move, 
Nothing that seemed alive until finally we saw two human beings very much alive and very drunk. <laughs> I noticed later, Walter Pepka became ominously silent. It was a pregnant silent silence. My husband was a relentless builder whose imagination sprang ahead of others in giant leaps. So later in September of 1945, Walter called together a meeting in Aspen uh, at the Pitkin County Courthouse. Fifty-four men and three women showed up. And then out of his pocket, Walter drew a paper containing 14 points. These began with practical issues, water, sewage, and zoning. But then he spoke of happiness and the ways of achieving the good life. He didn't feel it was necessary to inform his audience that the stated ideals were Greek in origin or that he had been largely influenced in his thoughts about political justice by his long association with Robert Hutchins and Mortimer Adler. But he did say the good life consisted of three things. Work, play, and leisure. There could be work for everyone who wished for such. Ski lifts must be built. The Jerome Hotel rehabilitated and many houses reconditioned. In these days, Aspen had no contractors, carpenters, or plumber. The fire equipment was archaic and most of the hydrants were non-functioning. No additions or repairs had been made for 50 years. Few paid taxes. The mayor worked without a salary, supporting himself by cleaning ditches for the local water company. The citizens of Aspen had so little money that many lived by barter and trade. Beckham Bishop's grocery store was open three hours a day. There was no game law that could be enforced. Citizens shot what they wanted according to need and inclination. Yes, there could be plenty of work. And for play, Aspen had a plethora of opportunity. But what was meant by the good use of leisure time became the main issue. It was a new thought for Walter's audience that killing time was not how leisure should be used, but rather that such time should be spent in improving the mind, enriching the spirit through continuing education, listening to music, having the opportunity to enjoy art, ballet, theater, poetry, spiritual pursuits? Did the rugged individualists welcome us? Our elite ideas. Were Walter's real estate purchases cheered or suspect? Did people leap to take advantage of Walter's kind offer for free house paint, but, according to Herbert Byers, aesthetic direction and color palette? Well, in time, work opportunities changed lives. And friendships were realized and grew. So all this fed the dream that led to the Goethe Bicentennial of 1949. In 1947, that was the year the Goethe Festival was first thought about. That was a time when the Second World War 
was still a shadow across our shoulder. Our allies were beginning to become disillusioned with themselves as well as each other. At the same time, in our own country, we were just waking to the problems of anti-Semitism and black discrimination. There were marches. Professor Albert Bergstrasser, head of the German Department of the University of Chicago, just then brought to Robert Hutchins' attention the fact that the 200th anniversary of Goethe's birth should be celebrated. And he presented the idea to Walter Pepke, who was trustee of the University of Chicago, with the problem. Suggesting Aspen, Walter asked, why Aspen? And Hutchins replied that it was desirable to have as a site a small, peaceful, simple, and somewhat remote community, free from the distractions of a large city, to which people would have to make pilgrimage because they wanted to be there. Why Goethe? Walter asked, and Hutchins continued. Because Goethe was a free spirit standing between two worlds in a time as difficult as our own. He had the strength to be an internationalist, and he had the genius to speak for the spirit of his time. And perhaps he has something to say to us today. I'd like to just quote from the introduction to the 1949 program of the Bicentennial Convocation. The difficulty of our time is the difficulty of the human spirit. We've had to abandon the illusion, which some of the ancestors were able to cherish, that our difficulty is primarily political, economic, technological, educational. The social order has been rearranged and old evils appear under new names. Literacy has flourished and taste has been debased. Goods have been produced and distributed in untold quantities and destroyed in untold quantities. Things seem to be bigger. They don't seem to be better. We are at last face to face with the fact that our difficulty is a difficulty of the human spirit. Walter wrote after the convocation, and I quote, the letters given, the lectures given under the token of Goethean universality mirrored many cultures. They were written independently, and no effort was made to tune them to the same key. If to grasp the truth, it must be viewed from many aspects. Such variety of aspect was present at Aspen. Perhaps what the convocation demonstrated most clearly is the extent to which people of sincere and searching thought in this war-torn, quarreling world do agree about last supreme things. So in 1949, 2,000 people filled the valley from Glenwood Springs to Aspen, finding any bed or sofa in farmhouse or parlor. They brushed their teeth on back porches, used outhouses, and washed their faces in the proverbial tin basin hanging from a hook. 
they listened. They listened to the Minneapolis Symphony, the Paganini Quartet, Dorothy Maynor. They listened to Mozart, Tartini, Brahms, Bach. They listened to Albert Schweitzer, Thurgood Wilder, Giuseppe Borges, Ernst Simon, and many more. As with my, as with the sorcerer's apprentice, my husband found he had given life to that which could not be stopped. The bicentennial was so highly acclaimed by participants that Walter, in 1950, formed the Aspen Institute to create a cultural and intellectual venue. The next summer, 1950, Aspen possessed a music school, a music festival lasting 11 weeks, running in conjunction. With the newly formed Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies, and Walter beamed with what he liked to call cross-fertilization of ideas. In 1960, Walter Pepke died. Nothing can remain as it once was, or should it, because such a state is one of atrophy, an ultimate demise. The institute has grown until it is hardly recognizable. Its programs—philosophical, political, practical—cover the hemisphere, biosphere, and stratosphere until the mind boggles. As the institute has grown, so has the town. The institute promoted the Aspen idea, the symbiosis of body, mind, and spirit. That would nurture the whole person. This unifying theater is my raison d'être. Since Walter's death, it has been my work, founding or supporting such programs as the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, the Given Biomedical Institute, the Aspen Art Museum, the Anderson Ranch Art Center, Aspen Film Fest, and Aspen Historical Society. I have had the means to contribute financially, but my true satisfaction is in rolling up my sleeves and digging in, planting seeds, nurturing, weeding, are our work. It is akin to me putting on my gardening gloves and turning earth, or hiking the hills with my hip, hip flask of sipping whiskey and trowel. To dig up the invasive Canadian thistle, I am often asked what I would want for the people of Aspen today. Fight hard for the things you believe in, and that means a constant fight. It doesn't mean only the Roaring Fork Valley. It means wherever you live, here, or anywhere. And let me close with Goethe's words. Since we came together so miraculously, let us not lead a trivial life. Thank you.